Well, good morning, everybody. Before I begin this morning, uh, occasionally we have these uh, celebrations that come up where uh, a birthday or an anniversary or something aligns. And so today, I think, is the anniversary of uh, Greg and Georgette Stankwitz, right? Okay. So uh, would you care, care to venture how many years that's been? 41. All right. Happy 41st anniversary. So uh, you must have got married very young because, you know... Uh, <laughs> well, uh, so today we're in week number two of a uh, six-week series we've called God Questions, and uh, last week I think we had these out, and there are still some at the information desk on your way out, uh, question, uh, a card full of questions that you can either take home for yourself as reminders or things to think about or uh, just to keep in front of you or to use this to invite somebody, and let me just say that in particularly, the next uh, four weeks after today are going to be very specific questions uh, that we don't hope to answer in 25 or 30 minutes, but we're going to give it our best shot uh, to at least address them. Uh, these first two weeks are a little bit more uh, introductory in terms of uh, laying out uh, this idea of God questions. What we mean, as we said last week, by God questions, uh, this is not time to catch up on your Bible trivia, to get all the answers to all those things that you always wondered, like why did God create caterpillars or those, you know, those kind of questions. These are, we're talking about the questions that get in the way of faith. The questions that cause us sometimes to stumble, the, the questions that maybe have caused people you know and love to avoid or step away from or stand outside of faith. Last week we reminded ourselves that questions are okay and in fact questions can lead to growth. Questions are oftentimes personal, they're emotional, there are things that come from life experience that prompt them uh, to be asked. And we made mention of the fact that sometimes we have grown intimidated or put off by questions because it seems to just uh, be an excuse for somebody or we can't answer and so we'd rather not touch it or we think it's irreverent to ask questions of God or about the church and so we have stayed away. And we mentioned uh, one of the things last week that really undergirds the whole six weeks is one of the best things we can do is embrace questions and embrace people who are asking questions and even lean into those things maybe that we can't understand or know but we can at least uh, be people-centered in our approach uh, to these things inside of our culture because if we really believe that Jesus is the answer that if Jesus is the way the truth and the life that we're going to read in just a couple of moments uh, then God is not put off by your questions God is not offended by the questions of your loved one and so we should do our best to come alongside of it also and so we ended with two questions. Who do you know that's a asking questions? Who do you know that has unanswered questions? Who do you know that has, that has questions that have caused them to step away from faith or drift back from faith? And then the second is, what are your questions? Because sometimes we have these questions that maybe don't keep us from being here this morning, but if we were to be honest, kind of drain and chip away and at, at times nag inside of our faith and so if we don't address them, there comes a point maybe where an event happens inside of life or we read somebody that has a nice slick answer that's outside of the Christian faith and we find ourselves pulled away. And so it's important that we, uh, too, embrace and engage inside of these questions. So uh, today we move on and, and kind of the overarching question, and I have to be honest, there was six or eight, and I'll share some of them in a few minutes, questions that really encapsulated where I want to go today, and no question was really perfect, uh, but where we ended with is, can my childhood faith stand up to my adult questions and my adult problems? 
Can my childhood faith stand up to the adult problems inside of my life? A quote that I've shared with you a, a time or two uh, from a missionary from the early part of the 1900s, E. Stanley Jones, said that he believed the individual had to be converted at every stage of life. And I think you've heard me say that uh, time, time or two. I like E. Stanley Jones, and I like that uh, quote. And what he's not saying is that the gospel is inadequate when you were 15, or that salvation didn't take, or that much like my BJ's or Costco membership, or once in a while it has to be renewed, otherwise you fail to live inside the privileges. Uh, but what he's saying is there's a different application point in, in life, that what the gospel brought and meant and how Jesus spoke and, and where faith made a difference inside of your life at 15 is different than at 30, at different at 21. It's different at year one of marriage versus year 41 at marriage. Of The gospel doesn't change, but it's the application of that and where we are that requires that we re-up our faith, that we re-engage our faith, that we give God access even to the different questions inside of our faith. Let me illustrate it by this. If I were to ask you one simple question, uh, this will be, we'll get a whole lot more giggles in the second service, but you, you can g giggle if you want, put on your inner sixth grader. Uh, where do babies come from? Okay. Thanks, appreciate the little, you know, the, the subtle giggles. Where do babies come from? You would answer that question differently to a five-year-old, then to a 15-year-old, then to a medical student. You, you're not lying, you're not trying to sidestep anything, but based on the intellect, uh, the placement, the motivation for the question, you would answer that question differently to three different people. After a while, the answer, mommy's tummy, is no longer a suitable answer. It doesn't work for the 15-year-old. It certainly doesn't work for the medical student. Do you know that for many, though, we walk around and our understanding of faith hasn't grown, hasn't developed, and so we think that the Sunday school answers that were right and that were true and that were applicable inside of that moment, our relationship with God never grows up, never matures. We almost maintain this mommy's tummy view of faith that eventually becomes inadequate and sometimes people walk away not because the gospel is insufficient, but because they've not grown in their understanding or we've not, inside of our language, helped them grow in their understanding of who God is. There are two authors that I'm going to refer to today. The one is uh, uh, Andy Stanley, who in 2017 preached the sermon series about this idea, somewhat similar to God questions, but it was called Who Needs God? And in message number two was called The Gods of the No Testament. The Gods of the No Testament. And, and so a little bit later, that's going to become uh, applicable to us. The second author is a guy named J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips wrote a book in 1961 that was called Your God is Too Small. So 1961, 2017, there's remarkable similarities to the things that we struggle with. And so this is inside the introduction uh, of J.B. Phillips' book. Uh, he writes this, and I tried to get a number of words, so hopefully you can read this. The trouble with many people today, 57 years ago, but think about this. The trouble with many people today is they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. While their experience of life has grown, grown in scores of directions, and their mental horizons have been expanded to the point of bewilderment. I think he's talking about the microwave or, you know, whatever the new invention. Think of how much has changed since 1961. Think of how much learning, medical advancement, technological advancement. But still, even in 1961, he said, uh, the reality is that we've grown in our mental capacities, in our understanding, uh, understanding of scientific discoveries, 
their ideas of God have largely remained static. Now, he goes on, you don't have this on the screen. It's impossible for an adult to worship the conception of God that exists in the mind of a child. Unless he is prepared to deny his own experience of life, or if, if by a great effort of the will he does this, he will always be secretly afraid that some new truth may expose the juvenility of his faith. And so he either worships a God who is too small to command his loyalty, or he lives in fear. This is J.B. Phillips in 1961. Christendom, Christianity was still, you know, a dominant religion. We can look back and say those were the good old days. Those were the times where it seemed like people went to church, people valued God. What, insert whatever summary statement of culture you want to put in there. 57 years ago, J.B. Phillips said, if we don't think about this, if we allow the juvenility of our faith, that if we don't grow it in our understanding and allow God to appropriate himself, even inside of the scientific discovery and the things that we're thinking about and the things that we're learning, indirectly and unintentionally, we end up with a God that is too small for life. Now, let me just set this distinction. There's a difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. A childlike faith leans into the innocence and, and the purity and the uncomplicated nature of what it means to know God, that God wants to be known inside of your life. A childish faith is weak and immature and stays with understandings and definitions, that stays away from difficult questions and conversations, that just almost wants to encapsulate the nostalgia of our faith and we don't grow and we just put it aside on the shelf to eventually becomes inadequate inside of our lives. So the question for the morning is, can my childhood faith stand up to my adult problems? A couple of the other questions we played around with was, what if I outgrew my childhood faith? Or maybe the question, did God change or did I? What if God is really not who you thought he was? Or what if the God I walked away from is an incomplete and inadequate understanding of God in the first place? You see this, have you ever had a conversation with somebody or you've seen a Facebook post or you heard a story of somebody who walked away from faith and when you listened to their reasons, when you heard their understanding, when you weighed in on their experience, what they really walked away from was a false understanding of God, was a misinterpretation of God, was some reaction to a Christian who did not get it right inside of their life and yet that is their picture then of who God is. If we're not careful... Indirectly and un unintentionally, we can offer an inaccurate and unbiblical view of God. And so down through history, when the word heresy comes up, we often think of heresy as here we are inside of our Orthodox Christian faith, and heresy is some, somebody that just created this rival religion somewhere down the road that's miles away from Christianity. But you know how most heresies start? It's one degree off the truth. Maybe we overemphasize something. Maybe we underemphasize something. Maybe we're just going to leave this part out. Maybe we're going to add in this interpretation. And what starts is one degree off. If we sat here with a compass and I was one degree off from you and we drove 100 miles, we would be miles apart by the time we get that far down the road. There's a departure. And it often starts subtly. So what is God really like? 
inside of everything that we read inside of scripture, everything that we go through, our, our understanding, the books that we've read, and the, the sermons we've listened to, and the praise songs, and the hymns that we've come, come to love? How do we safeguard our faith to know that we are not subtly drifting ourselves? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14. Now last week we were in John chapter 11, and we mentioned that this is just before Jesus goes to Jerusalem for that last time, just before the crucifixion, just before the resurrection, and as, as Jesus is there with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, we know that just the next chapter over, he goes to Jerusalem. And in going to Jerusalem, inside of that last week, John gives us a little bit more of an extended view inside of that last supper Thursday evening. Jesus gathers with his disciples. He talks about his death, and they don't really understand it. He washes their feet. And they spend that evening together, that last evening of his earthly life. John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all about that one evening in particular. And so in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus reminds them that he's going to go and prepare a place for them. That one day where he is, they also will be. And later he's going to go on and he's going to talk about that they could do greater things even than him because of the Holy Spirit inside of their lives. But in between there, there's, there's five or six verses that I want to draw your attention to that really, uh, that Jesus, inside of this time of confusion and just before the cross and the resurrection, Jesus wants to take the disciples back to what really is central inside of their identity about who God is. So John chapter 14, beginning with verse number five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And so inside of this uh, teaching that many of you have maybe memorized as a child, Jesus said, John chapter 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But inside of that, again, as he's trying to clarify, to summarize, to really make sure the disciples got this, he wants to go on, and, and he actually makes the point to say that to know me is to know God. That if you know me, Jesus, you know God. You don't have to wonder inside of the mystery of all who God is and, and you know, the, the books of the Old Testament and what's going to be written inside the New Testament and everything that you're going to interpret and what you're going to hear people say. If you bring it back to, if you know me, you know God. He takes it further and says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And they've seen him and they've touched him and they spent time with him and they were in his presence and they've seen him. He says, to hear me, if you've heard my words, you've heard from God. Jesus is the best definition of who God is. Jesus is the most accurate picture of who God is. 
Jesus didn't come to nullify what came before inside of the entire Old Testament, but to fulfill it. When in doubt inside of our world, we look to and we define our faith and we measure it against the person and the work of who Jesus is and what he said. That's why we read scripture. That's why we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's why we center ourselves as a Jesus-centered people, that there's a cross on our, on our church, that we bear the word Christian, which is a little Christ, that we are people who follow Jesus, and that to know Jesus is to know what God is like. So Jesus on this last evening probably sounds a little bit arrogant, maybe even a tad blasphemous, that he's going to take the pinnacle holiday for the Jewish people that celebrates Moses bringing the people out of bondage and inside of God's relief and God's salvation inside of that moment. And he says, by the way, this meal that you're eating, it's all about me. From now on, when you eat it, you're not going to really think about all that as much as you're going to think about who I am and what I've done for you. Jesus even interprets scripture through himself, and we do as well. That becomes important for you and me. That when you come up against it, this book that I've just read or this Bible study that I've came out of or this sermon that I've just listened to, the measuring stick becomes, in light of who Jesus is and what he's taught us, that's the true picture of what it means to know and to follow God. It sounds easy, it sounds simple, it sounds like what we do, but how oftentimes we can talk about the things of God or the things of faith or the things inside of our relationship or the nuances, and maybe sometimes we push to the side or marginalize unintentionally who Jesus is in the midst of that. So rather than go on and and try to give you the the eight characteristics of who Jesus is and what he's done and and just try to encapsulate that for us, I think it's easier to speak in the negative. And so I want to talk this morning about a few distortions that exist inside of our culture, inside of our churches, and remember the one degree off thing. There's an element of truth in all the things we're going to talk about. You could find a a verse to support it. You could find a hymn to support it. You can remember a great sermon that probably went down that angle. It's not that these things are wrong, but when we begin to overemphasize on secondary things, they have the opportunity to displace primary things, which is Jesus. They're not the only ones. I can't chapter and verse these things for you, but they're things and there's ways in which we learn maybe this is what God is like when he's not really like that at all. It's possible that you know somebody who walked away from faith because of one of these understandings. And if so, that's good because this God doesn't exist anyway. It's a distortion. But at times we get caught up in this when how we talk about faith. We talk about sometimes the secondary effects of our faith inside of our life rather than primarily what it means to know and relate to and follow Jesus. So I have five that I want to share with you. The first is white glove God. White glove God, you know the little white glove that that I've never done it, but you've seen people put on and they go across and to show you whether something's clean or not, right? How many of you have ever put on a white glove and tested for dust anywhere? It's just in the movies, I guess. It's just something out out there. But, But you get the idea, how many of you figuratively, maybe you've not actually put on the white glove, but you've had someone do this inside of your life, either physically with your house or morally inside of your life, or a boss for your performance, 
where it seems like they're walking around with a white glove on. Anybody ever, ever experienced that? Okay, what that does inside of you to, that you feel like you're always walking on eggshells, that you're being inspected of whether my life is good enough or clean enough or right enough or whether I've performed well enough. For me, my mom used to always have this dust, and, or, or for me, I, I dusted on Saturday mornings. That was my job. I was the youngest kid, so I got the job that my brothers didn't want to do. And uh, the strange thing about dusting is you could get away with not doing it for a week or so and acting like you're doing it. But then there's always at times where, where I would have to do it, and I would go and just kind of casually dust. You could tell where my hand had been and my hand had not been, and my mom made me go back and do it all over again. And so that was you know, my white glove experience. Currently today, when Rachel's parents come to visit, we clean differently when they come when one of you are coming over. I'm sorry to say it. So <laughs> when Rachel's mom is coming, that's the four times a year that we clean inside the microwave, that we make sure that the microwave is clean. Now, if I put spaghetti sauce in and don't cover it, there's probably a couple other times during the year that the microwave gets cleaned uh, because of that, but mostly it's when Rachel's mom is coming to visit. There's something about that inside of our life that's okay when we're talking about the microwave or performance review, but it's no fun to live in a relationship with God that way. J.B. Phillips in 1961 called this the resident policeman, that somehow God is just patrolling across your life to see where you've messed up, where you've fallen short. Had a, a girl in youth group at Sharptown who told me once that she liked Sharptown and our music and our style, but she had grown up in kind of a more fundamentalist Baptist background, and she said, the problem is I just don't feel bad enough when I leave church. And I said, that, that's interesting. Tell me, tell me more about that. And she said, well, if God is holy, then we should leave church feeling very bad about ourselves because we're exposed and everything we've done wrong comes to light, and, and we should leave feeling bad about ourselves because that's when we really know what grace is like. And and I, I don't want to go into whether that's a good approach or not for church, but, but sometimes that's what we live into, that if we feel bad, it must be that God really has access to our lives. And if we feel good, then maybe it's time for the white glove to come out again. So we sing songs that he sees, and he watches, and don't worry, he knows. At Asbury College, when we'd have to submit a reading report that said, did, did you do all your required reading? It was on the honor system, and at a Christian college, it's even more than the honor system. It's, uh, it's between you and God to fill out your reading report. And so there was a moral dilemma the day before the reading report was due all across the dormitory at Asbury College, what, what you're going to put down. We live in a cycle of trying to measure up, trying to do better, trying to earn the love and respect of God. And we try and we try and then we fail and we feel guilty and sometimes that leads to repentance and sometimes that just leads to frustration. And you know people and I know people who have said, I'm done with that. And we think it's just they want to go and live how they want to live and maybe that's the case, but maybe we have indirectly been teaching them the wrong God that because we're concerned about holiness and we're concerned about righteousness and the gospel making an impact inside of their lives and, and safeguarding them from harm that we've indirectly communicated that the view of God is with a white glove, carefully combing over your life just to see whether or not you're good enough or not, or you've made the mark or not. And the primary word that defines the Christian faith is no. If you enjoy it, no. If it brings you joy, no. 
there's any pleasure inside of it at all, the answer is probably no. To virtually every question, can I do that, the answer is probably no. White glove God. The second is what I want to call the, the man upstairs version of God. And the man upstairs, I, I have to admit, and I, I don't mean anything disrespectful by this, but I tend to think of a country music song or a guy getting out of a, na after a NASCAR race that he's won, and, you know, I just want to thank the, the man upstairs kind of thing. And, it, and it's one of those things that their cultural understanding that God is real, that God is good, that God's even worthy of our respect, but he's either not really active in my day-to-day -day life or there's only a degree to which I allow him to be involved in my everyday life. Phillips calls this the grand old man, that, that the picture almost of an old man on a rocking chair on a front porch, maybe a glass of lemonade there, and, and he's there, he, he's to be respected, he's the patriarch, but most of the time, to be honest, he's asleep and he's not really engaged with what's going on. Detached, much like a monarchy that only exists for celebration, or a professor emeritus who has an, a title and an office but no longer teaches, or an honorary member of a board who now is allowed to come to the meetings and is kind of the, the person you revere but you're not really taking advice from. We're grateful for their input in our lives, but our lives day to day aren't really affected by them. Sometimes we live with a man upstairs, version of God. The third is bubble wrap God. Uh, bubble wrap God is just the idea that God will take care of us. That there's songs about this, that God's going to go before us inside of what we do and inside of perhaps the most prosperous nation in the most prosperous time in all the world. Some have argued we pray more about safety than any other culture or age before us. Because we have so much, we expect so much. Because the infant mortality rate drops, it is extremely tragic and rightfully so when a child dies. Because we have seatbelts and, and safer cars, it's a bigger tragedy when someone dies inside of a car accident. But somehow we've drifted into this mentality that my health and my su success and my reputation and my happiness are the primary things that God is just there to ensure, just like bubble wrap inside of our lives. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for safety, but when it becomes the only thing we pray about is the safety and security of our kids and of our family, and we don't pray for a word that world that's in need or for the boldness to do what God wants us to do, we're missing the mark. I don't think you find one prayer for safety inside the New Testament. But instead, when Paul is released from prison, the prayer is, Lord, would you help us? Would you enable your servants to speak your word with boldness? I don't know where this idea of God comes from inside of our lives. Because if you look at the Christian faith, the Christian faith was founded upon events that one of the most horrible things you can imagine happens to, one of, to the best person that ever lived. The most horrible thing you can imagine happens to the best person that ever lived. And in two weeks, we're going to talk about the question, in particular, why do bad things happen to good people? But for now, I want to say, if your primary understanding of God is bubble-wrapped God that's just there to ensure your health and your safety and your well-being, where did that idea come from? Because it didn't come from the New Testament. The apostles all suffered for their faith. Most of them died for their faith. Tragically and horribly. And yet somehow in American culture, we think the primary thing God's doing inside of my life is keep me safe on my trip, keep my children from harm, 
and we're missing out on what God really wants for us. Does God care about your safety? Absolutely. Is it wrong to pray those prayers? No, but if that's the only thing you're praying, and if that's your primary understanding of God, maybe it's one degree off that over time leads us astray. Number four is comfy and cozy God, and I wish I had a better name for this, but this is a good summary. This is the idea that you should always feel the presence of God. Much like a golden retriever or a favorite blanket or returning home for Thanksgiving, like romance in a marriage or a dating relationship, there are some things that just feel right, and conversely, there are things that seem out of place and just don't feel right. And so shouldn't we feel the presence of God? Shouldn't there be this assurance, this spiritual high, this knowledge that that God is with us because I can feel that he's there? Yet the problem is retreats are followed up by horrible weeks at work. Your morning devotion time is followed up by a traffic jam. That life-giving conversation that you had with someone is followed up by a season maybe of loneliness and a lack of connection. What happens when we don't feel him like we did at camp or on the retreat or last Sunday in church? What happens inside of those Tuesday morning or Friday afternoon moments where you don't feel him? The devotional writers have written about that dark night of the soul, that there are sometimes, even for mature believers, seasons of time where we don't feel his presence like we once once did, but we know that it's true because what we read in Scripture and who we see in the person of Jesus. The fifth one is on-demand God. On-demand God, we live in a world of Google and Siri and Amazon Prime and Netflix and Uber, and we're used to be able to get instantaneously at least a response to what we want and what we feel like we need. But long before the advances of technology and our culture, Christians have struggled in this area. Shouldn't God answer my prayers? Answer them accordingly to what I want and accordingly to the timeline that I expect. We're not talking about the God, if you give me $10 million, I'll I'll, I'll tithe on it, and then the other $9 million, I'll be sure to honor you. Like, I'm not talking about those kind of prayers, or God, if I had a new Mercedes, I would drive to the homeless shelter as often as, like, not those kind of ridiculous, but wouldn't you expect, if you had that power, like, for God to be able to respond to reasonable requests, according to what we feel like we want, if God is able, and if God is caring, shouldn't he answer my prayers according to the way I think he should? When I pray for my kids, when I pray for my coworker. When I pray for my own struggle, we're not even talking about extravagant prayers. We're talking about the, just the horrible things that we see in front of us that we feel like God should do something about this. There's an element of truth inside of all five of these. Does God answer prayer? Absolutely. Does God give, give us moments where we can feel his presence and we know that he's there and there's the assurance of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Does God care about how you live your life? And that it should look different today, that you should struggle with different things today than you struggled with five years ago because there's victory and there's power in the blood of Jesus? Absolutely. Is God to be revered and expected and is not always just the, the cool, relevant, contextual God of today, but is, is there a timeless element that God is eternal and he's not just like your buddy down the road, but there's an element of respect? Absolutely. Is it God's desire to take, o- take care and watch over your life? Absolutely. 
But you can see what happens when this becomes the dominant picture of who God is inside of our lives. Much more than that, for those of us who are here, because most likely you haven't walked away from faith if you're here today, unless somebody just made you come in order to buy you breakfast, you know, in a few minutes, and that's okay. But most likely you're here this morning, and you're probably not struggling with this as a dominant picture, but sometimes it comes out in how we speak about God. Because instead of speaking about who Jesus is inside of my life and what it means to follow Jesus and the reality of, of who he is and what he's done, it's sometimes easier to talk about the effects of following Jesus. He answered my prayer. I just, I feel him in, in my heart. And somebody else is thinking, well, I haven't felt it. I listened to the same sermon as you, and I didn't feel anything. God just answers my prayers. Well, what about my nephew who's still in the hospital? Sometimes it's the way that we talk about our faith. Again, unintentionally, that could lead someone to think that this then is what God is like. There's others. We're going to talk about the perception that God is anti-science in a couple weeks. We're going to talk about a few of these other things, and maybe there's a different distortion that's been at work inside of your life. But remember, J.B. Phillips says, if we don't grow in our understanding that if our faith doesn't mature, eventually it becomes inadequate. Because if you believe in one of these gods, eventually that will become insufficient for the problems you deal with. And maybe not for you, but for your kids and for your grandkids, this becomes insufficient for where they're currently living. It's worth asking ourselves, who told us what God is like? Where did our view of God originate, or where did it begin to depart as we got involved in that study, or as we went through this season of my life, or as we saw fruit over here, we began maybe to drift, not away from Jesus, but in the way in which we define and talk about our faith. So back to our questions from last week, who do you know that's carrying around a distorted view of God? Who do you know that maybe left the Christian faith prematurely or unnecessarily because the God they left is not really the God of Scripture at all. And then for us, what are the ways, either subtle or not so subtle, that we've fallen into this or another distortion? And maybe it hasn't ruined or derailed our faith, but maybe the way in which we talk about God has indirectly pointed somebody else away because they've not seen the answer prayer, or they've not felt the feeling, or they've not had the sense that God was there to answer their prayers, or it just seems like rules and legalism inside of their lives. What if we begin to talk more about Jesus and what's primary inside of our faith and less about the secondary effects of what happens inside of our lives? What if for people who walked away, we said, maybe you walked away for exactly the right reasons, but maybe you walked away a little bit too soon or unnecessarily. As we go throughout the next few weeks, and we consider questions about science, and about pain, and about hypocrisy, and about our relation and understanding the scripture in a world that seems to throw more curveballs out about what's in scripture. Allow God, first of all, Do you penetrate my life in such a way that if there are distortions that I'm 
unintentionally and indirectly putting forth, refocus my faith on Jesus. Pray for somebody you know who perhaps has walked away or drifted away for the wrong reasons. Again, there's value in questions. Whose questions inside of life are you going to engage with this week? What questions of your own are you going to engage with this week? Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Scripture, everything begins and ends with Jesus. That even at the outset of our service, as, as Bill read from Colossians, that by you and for you all things were created. And in you is the supremacy. Lord, would you enable us to have a faith that's centered first and foremost on who you are and what you've said, more than just the secondary effects of what you've brought inside of our lives. Lord, would you refine our faith this morning? Lord, would you lay on our hearts maybe somebody to pray for and to reach out to? God, would you use not only this series, but would you use our lives and our witness and our relationships to point people to you first and foremost? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.